I'm one of the pastors tied to this church here at Melrose. Uh, my main responsibility to this church has to do mostly with our smaller communities. But today, this is one of uh, the great privileges that I get, where I get to open up the word to you. Um, and today's message involves a climb up a mountain. And if you know me or have known me for a long time, you know that's kind of an appealing topic to me. One of the things on my uh, personal bucket list, one of my stated goals uh, that I kind of took on maybe coming out of college, was that I wanted to climb to the top of all 50 states in the U.S. Now you might ask, have you really thought through the logistics of that? And the answer is, not really. I mean, I've only climbed six or seven high peaks so far, so I haven't had to worry about how I would get out to Colorado and actually climb up Pikes Peak, or how I would get to Alaska and get up Mount McKinley. Um, but I figure if I do one each year, that's progress, that's doable, and I'm keeping, um, I'm keeping Rhode Island in my back pocket if there's ever a bad year, because that's like 800 feet high and it's in someone's backyard. Um, but the best climb, the best climb that I've ever experienced was a time a group of friends and I went up Mount Mansfield in Vermont. And if you've ever tried, uh, if you've ever gone hiking in Vermont and tried to get to the top of Mount Mansfield, you know that is a pretty steep climb. It was a wet day when we went up. It was foggy. It was cloudy. We were going just kind of clambering like head over, uh, hand over foot up rocks. And we just, by the end, we were just kind of dragging ourselves up there. It was so foggy that at first we didn't even realize we were at the top. I looked down and I saw a little gold mar marker that said 4,393 feet, mountain, peak of Mount Mansfield. We were in complete clouds. We couldn't see a single thing. So there we were, 4,400 feet above sea level, and we couldn't even, we could barely see each other, like, let alone have any type of view. And I thought, great, we drove all the way out here, we, we camped, we stayed overnight, we hiked for hours, and here I am at the top, it's cold, it's wet, I can't even see anything. And we were already in pain. I was thinking about going back down. We were going to have to pack up the van, get all our dirty stuff in there, and drive all the way back home. And then for just a second, the clouds gave way. It was probably 30 seconds at the most, 25, 30 seconds. But in one
Okay. Everyone can hear me? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and illuminate us by your spirit and cause us to see the glory of Jesus today as we open up this scripture. Amen. Okay, so let's get into this text and see what it was that Jesus was actually revealing about himself on the mountain. So there are three questions that I actually want us to answer as we work through this. The first one is, why is Jesus showing his glory to his disciples? The second is, what is it about the glory of Jesus that we need to recognize? Like when we talk about his glory, what are we actually talking about? And third, what does that glory compel us to do? So for, let's go with the first question. Why is Jesus showing his glory in this transfiguration account? If you're like me at all and you've read the story before, it isn't really the easiest story to understand at face value. Jesus takes three disciples up a mountain. Then while they're on the summit, he actually changes in appearance. Mark says that he becomes radiantly, intensely white. Then Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament figures that have been dead and gone for hundreds of years, appear on the mountain. Then the voice of God comes down from heaven, and then everything fades to gray, and we head back down. And Jesus doesn't really explain what was going on. He just says, as we've heard before, not to tell anyone until after he rises again. So what is actually going on here? The first thing that I want to say is we can't read this story in isolation from the rest of the gospel. Look at that first phrase in uh, verse 2. It says, after six days. Why is Mark making a specific notation in time when most of the time in Mark he usually just says immediately? He doesn't typically note the strict number of days. He's being specific this time because he's intentionally connecting this event with the words of Jesus in the previous passage. So let's go backwards real quickly because what's really happening here is the culmination of a whole week's worth of events. We need to review, okay, but stay with me, because what's happening here is the climax of what Jesus has been saying for this last week. Your Bible probably has a couple different subheadings between Mark 8.27 and Mark 9.13 that makes it seem like these could all be isolated incidents. They're not, okay? This is, this is a week's event. These, happen, these events happen in close proximity to each other, so I need you to see that they're closely related. If we go backwards in Mark 8... Jesus had gathered his disciples together, and he'd said to them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples kind of give him the popular scuttlebutt at that point. They said, some say Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Some say John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And Jesus turned the question back on the disciples and said, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's becoming kind of a mouthpiece for this group, says, you are the Christ. Peter has this moment of faith and realization where he sees that Jesus, the man that he's been following, is more than just a great leader and teacher. He's more than a healer. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one of God. But we realize really quickly that Peter's understanding of Jesus as Messiah is going to need some adjustment. Because in the next story, the one that Matt has been preaching through for the past couple weeks, Jesus deals out some incredibly tough news. He tells the disciples that he is going to suffer many things and he's going to die. And when he tells them in the news, he doesn't prep them at all. He doesn't say, hey, I think it would be a good idea if you were sitting down right now. He doesn't say, this is going to be hard for you, okay? So take your time with this. The text says he tells it to them plainly. And you know that it rocks them all. 
But Peter is the one that reacts the strongest. And he says, no. And he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Peter right back. And he says, not only is his life going to involve suffering and pain and shame and death, but that suffering and shame is going to actually be the path of everyone that follows him. So I want you to picture the disciples after Jesus has told them this. They've experienced the the incredible news that Jesus is the promised one of God. And while that's just sinking in, Jesus says, that doesn't mean for you what you think that it means. Your dreams of sitting in a corner office while I conquer Rome and take over Jerusalem and become this powerful political leader, those need to end right now. I am the promised one of God, but my path and your path, by definition, are going to involve suffering and shame and disgrace. And for the disciples, that's when the room starts to spin. That's the time when you're looking at someone and you're saying, I see that your mouth is moving, but I don't actually know what you're saying. I can't really comprehend these words. This is the intensity of the moment that the disciples are feeling. They are in total, total shock. Okay, if I were Matt Cruz, this is when I would say, I need you to feel this. Okay, (laughs) they're in total shock. Now remember, okay, the intensity of these words. Jesus has said that he would rise again, but they didn't really hear that. Okay, he would, he said that there would be glory in their suffering. They didn't really get that yet. So now we get to the transfiguration account. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote separate accounts of this story. And even though all three writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, they all arranged their Gospels differently to serve the audiences that they were writing to, each one placed the transfiguration account right after Jesus' passage about suffering and shame and death. Each author noted the passage of time between the two events. Why are they doing this? Because these are very connected events. So after six days, Jesus says, okay, we are taking a hike. And he grabs Peter and James and John, and he leads them up a high mountain. And in the scripture, the mountain is always a place of revelation. The mountain of Sinai is where the law was given to Moses. The mountain of Carmel is where the power of God was displayed for Elijah. The sermon on the mount is where Jesus taught his followers. And now Jesus is saying, I told you something plainly, but you didn't hear it. I guess you're visual learners. And he takes them up the mountain. So I imagine the disciples might have been saying, why are we doing this? Every once in a while, our pastor team will get together and go up to Toa Nippi. The, uh, there's a retreat center up in Vermont, or sorry, New Hampshire, called Toa Nippi. And when we go up there, Kevin and Luce will always want to get up early in the morning and climb up Mount Monadnock. And sometimes we just say no. But sometimes he gets his way, and we get up early in the morning, and Kevin just scampers up the mountain, And the rest of us are just kind of dragging ourselves up there, kind of grumbling the whole way. Why are we doing this? What is the point of this? And I kind of imagine that's what the disciples were thinking. What are we doing? Why do we have to go up this mountain? But when they get to the top, the disciples see something that they've never seen before. They see Jesus, and he is transfigured before them. The text says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus, the man, the one with the suspicious birth, the one who worked with his hands, the one who lived among them, is changed right in front of their eyes. They see his glory revealed to them. 
they see this man as wholly other, as fully God. And the disciples need to see this because it's going to change them. When Jesus told them that they were going to be called to suffer and die, it terrified them. It ruined all their plans because they thought Jesus was going to serve their ends. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they see a glimpse of Jesus in his utterly holy and supreme splendor, and it changes them. In his wisdom and in his kindness, Jesus sees the disciples, and he recognizes that they don't really get his true nature. So he shows them this vision, so awe-inspiring that it shakes them all the way to the core. How do we know that it changes them? Because decades later, we have the testimony of Peter himself. He's writing to the churches, probably in Asia somewhere, in 2 Peter. And Peter is an old man at this point. And he's writing to them, and he says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now we know that Peter did not get to a mature place right away. We know that there is a lot of growing up and a lot that he's going to have to learn and he's still going to deny Christ and he's still going to buck against the suffering that he's called to do. But at the end of his life, as he's writing this letter to these churches, he says, this is not some story that I just put together. This is not a cleverly devised myth. I'm talking to you about the power of Christ and his sure return and I'm staking my life on that because I was with him on the holy mountain. I was there, and I've seen his power and glory. Someone said once that what we think about God is the most important thing that we think. The disciples saw Jesus revealed to them as God in his glory. It changed them forever. Jesus shows the disciples his glory because he knows they're going to need that vision to sustain them on the path of discipleship. The suffering and the shame that they're going to have to endure is going to be fueled by this vision of the glory of God. They needed it for what discipleship was going to require. So I want to transition from there and say, what actually is so amazing about the glory of God? You might kind of be saying, okay, Matt, I see that Jesus gets really bright and the disciples have some sort of experience, you're talking about glory. That sounds kind of abstract. What does that really mean? Something that is glorious is something that's deserving of great praise, of honor, of fame, of renown. What happens on the mountain shows us the weight and the intensity of Jesus's glory. The text tells us that in his transfiguration, Jesus becomes radiantly and intensely white. He took on an unearthly light. His clothes were white in a way that no one on earth could bleach them. Why is he blazing white? Because he's totally pure. Because he's the spotless lamb of God. The sinless one who alone is capable of absorbing the sin of the world. 
the text says that Moses and Elijah are on the mountain with Jesus. Why are these two on the mountain? Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets of the older covenant. Moses brought the law to the people of God, while Elijah was a prophet who continually called the people back to the law of God. Both prophets pointed forward to Jesus. The law illustrated the utter perfection and holiness of God. It required an utterly perfect man to fulfill it. And scripture actually tells us that Moses had an experience with the glory of God. In Exodus 34, when the glory of God passed by Moses, the story says that his face shone for 40 days. Moses reflected the glory of God, but in Jesus, we see the glory of God dwells within him. Jesus doesn't simply reflect God's glory. It emanates and radiates out of him. Moses reflected God's glory. Jesus embodies God's glory because he is God. The text tells us that in this amazing scene where Moses and Elijah are conversing with the glorified Christ, Peter has the audacity to speak up and he says, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Mark inserts this kind of editorial comment that Peter didn't know what to say because he was terrified. Peter is one of those guys that when he doesn't know what to say, he says something anyway. And here is his suggestion. This is great. The two superstars of the older covenant and Jesus. Let's make three tents. Let's stay up here. I it doesn't seem clear that Peter recognizes a differentiation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He says, all three are great. This is glorious. Let's stay up here. And the voice of God comes down and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This isn't the first time in Mark that we've seen the voice of God come down from the clouds and say, this is my beloved son. Back in Mark 1 at his baptism, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Back then, the father was affirming Jesus' ministry. But now the father is saying something more. He's saying, Moses, he was great. Elijah, he was great. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the prophets. He's holy God. Listen to him. Jesus is God. The law and the prophets have been pointing towards him. This is the man who radiates internal glory. He's the spotless one who will be able to wash us and make us whiter than snow. When we see the glorified Christ, that's not an abstract concept. In his transfiguration, we see the qualities of Jesus that fill us with great hope. We see the man to whom the law and the prophets have been pointing towards. We see the power of Jesus to absorb the sin of the world. And we see the affirmation of the Father that Jesus has full authority. So what does this glory actually compel us to do? This is kind of the place where I want to conclude. We've already noticed that Peter has suggested they stay on the mountain. And on one hand, it seems so outrageous that Peter in that moment would say anything. At the same time, there's something really incredibly human and relatable, I think, about what Peter's saying here. Because it's wonderful for Peter to see Jesus in his glory. Peter wants it to last. He wants to hold on to it and kind of contain this moment. And Peter floats that out there. Hey, this is good. Let's stay up here. Let's build three tents. 
But the voice of God silences Peter's agenda. And scripture says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And in that moment, everything changed. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Jesus is wearing his regular clothes. And he and the disciples have to descend down the mountain. There is that moment, if you ever have climbed a mountain at all, where you realize at the top, hey, we have to go back down. We don't get to stay up here. This is a great view. We don't get to stay up here. So they go down, and they were coming down the mountain, and it says Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And after the resurrection, the disciples would be charged with this mission of making disciples, telling everyone about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, telling them that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the forgiveness of sins that's found in his name. Peter would say, I saw him on the holy mountain. But this is kind of where we find ourselves, back with the disciples. This is where, this is where I think the church often is. We find ourselves a little tired, a little confused, a little wishing that we could just stay in that comfortable place. It's very human to want the comfort and the status quo. But the glory of God and his perfection, it compels us on mission. It motivates us to testify of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. The disciples would have loved to stay on that mountain. Jesus could have chosen to stay up there. He could have chosen never to even descend to this earth, never to take flesh, to engage in our struggle and sin and pain. But Jesus comes down off the mountain. His face is set towards the mission that will culminate in the cross and in the resurrection. At the bottom of the mountain is the valley in its sin and in its pain. It's not, it's not a mistake that the next story in the gospel, Jesus is at the bottom of the valley, ministering to a boy who's possessed by a demonic spirit that's controlling him and controlling his speech and causing his body to go rigid and foam at the mouth. This is the sort of thing that, who would want to engage with that? Who, how comfortable would it be to say, I don't really want to deal with that, but that's where Jesus goes. He's utterly transcendent. He's full of glory, but he leaves the mountain. He takes the long, slow trip down into the valley the valley of suffering and shame and loss, because that's where he's called to. And his disciples follow him into that valley. Death in life is the rhythm of the disciple. But we welcome death when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians. Matt read the scripture earlier. We have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus would be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, 
but life in you. Those who follow Christ are always being given over to death. We're forever being called on this road of descent down into the valley. So what does it look for us, like for us to actually go down into the valley? It means that right now, we're living in between the resurrection and the return of Christ. And we acknowledge that. We accept that. We gladly receive discomfort and shame and indignity and suffering for the sake of his glory. We see our suffering and our affliction in light of the glory of Christ. One of the great theologians of the 19th century, one of the things I like about 19th century theologians is they have great names. A.W. Pink said, he said, afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. So let me ask you this. Does the way that you work or the way that you pray or the way that you live out your life among your family, your friends, your neighbors, does it show off the glory of Christ? Because if we've seen Christ as glorious, it compels us to that engagement and that love for family and neighbor. Does it say that Jesus is supremely valuable? At a, just at a gut level, at our deepest level, do you think that life is a story about you? Or is your life going to be found inside the much bigger narrative that God is writing? Because that story isn't going to be about you. But you will find life and joy there. And you'll find eternal glory in it. Because the glory is going to him. In those areas that I talked about, whether it's work or whether it's home or family or friends, there it is inevitable that we will be called to die there. And we will want to resist it. Jesus says that he is called to suffer and die and rise again. And that everyone that follows him is called to embrace that rhythm of suffering and death to find real life. In the transfiguration we see, it's his glory that fuels us on mission. It's the glory of Jesus that takes us down the mountain into engagement with the suffering world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have caused us to behold you and to see the glory of God when you took form and when you walked among us. Thank you that you are the spotless one with the power to take away the sins of the world. We pray that your glory would be revealed and shed in our hearts in just even deeper and more profound ways and that it would compel us as it does the disciples into mission, into engagement with the world around us. We pray for it. We ask it. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.